you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7, as you're finding your seats. If you would, read along with me. Starting in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might, might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has Realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Dear me, Father, Lord God, I thank you, God, for this book of Ephesians, Lord. I thank you for this uh, section, Lord, this deep theology about the church and being one, being unified, Lord. In your son. God, I pray as we go through this portion of scripture, Lord, learning about this mystery that was, was hidden for ages, Lord, that has been revealed to us that Jews and Gentiles in every nation, Lord, on the earth are one in Christ. God, I pray that we're in awe of your wisdom. We're in awe that the church, Lord, displays your wisdom, not because we have done anything, Lord, but because of what you have done for us, that your wisdom is put on display for the heavenly beings, Lord, in a cosmic way. God, I pray that just humbles us, Lord. I pray for us this morning, Lord, as we talk about this this passage. I pray that your words are heard, not mine, Lord. Just pray that you're with us in your son's name. Amen. We're almost at the halfway point. Um, of the book of Ephesians, and uh, I thought it would be good this morning just to kind of review where we have where we have been so far in this book. Um, and I want to start by talking about the outline, which I've talked about a lot, but it's super important in understanding the book of Ephesians as a whole is how Paul has written it. And the outline, really, the body of Ephesians can be divided into two sections. Two sections: the the doctrinal theological section which is chapters 1 through 3, which is really about what has happened to us, what what God has done. And then you have the ethical or practical sections, which is chapter 4 through 6, how we we should respond. Chapters 1 through 3 is what has happened, in other words, and chapters 4 through 6 is how we should live. It's the deep theology in chapters 1 through 3 was meant to be foundational to how we should live in, in light of this theology, what God has done for us and what he has done. And the grammar really supports this. I've talked about this before, that there's 40 imperatives, there's 40 commands in the book of Ephesians. And 39 of the 40, 40 commands are found in Ephesians chapters 4 through 6. That means there's only one command in chapters 1 through 3. Everything else is indicative, the verbs. That means it's statements of fact telling us information about, about who we are and what has happened to us by God's grace. In other words, chapters 1 through 3 gives us the theology of who we are by God's grace, and chapters 4 through 6 
gives us the commands of how we should live in light of it. It's important that the first half of Ephesians and the second half of Ephesians, that we understand that they're connected. They're connected. Remember, this letter was written to a church, the church in Ephesus, and it was meant to be read in one sitting, which takes about 20 minutes to read out loud. It was meant to be read together. Therefore, the theology in chapters 1 through 3, which we've been going over for months now, is meant to be connected to the practical commands found in chapters 4 through 6. Meaning, as I said, as we started the book of Ephesians, there's a danger in moving slowly, and I know we have been moving slowly through the book of Ephesians. There's two, two mistakes that we can make by moving slowly as we study this book in-depthly. You can either get deep theology without practical ways of living it out, or you could have practical, practical commands without the proper theological motivations motivating the way we're living. And what's funny about the book of Ephesians, I said this in um, the introduction of the book, a lot of people, the book of Ephesians is their favorite book in the Bible, and a lot of people, when you talk with them, you find out that it's really either the first half they love or the second half they love. Verses 1 through 3, because they love abstract, deep theology, or chapters 4 through 6, because they like practical ways of living out. And we need to remember that those things are supposed to be together. They're supposed to be connected. And that's why I've been saying the theme of Ephesians, and I I just made this up, the theme of Ephesians is the depth of God's grace lived out in love. The the deep truths of God's grace, chapters 1 through 3, lived out in love, chapter 4 through 6. And just so you know, I'm really excited that we have this week, um, and I think next week we'll be done with the first half of Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, and we'll be starting to get to chapters 4 through 6. And just so you know, I'm typically the deep theology lover, so the first half of the book of Ephesians is my my favorite, and I have grown to really love the second half as I have tried to um, live out what this means in my life. But what I'm excited about as we get into the second half um, of Ephesians Ephesians is actually the application that, that the biblical application that we're going to find in there, especially for our small groups. If you're a part of a small group, um, I think this is going to be great because it's keeping each other accountable to what God has called us to do and how God has called us to live. And so we've been going over this deep theology in small groups. Now we're going to be diving into keeping each other accountable and how we should live it out. And so I'm excited as we start chapter four in two weeks. Um, but we've been in chapters 1 through 3 for months now in this deep theology of God's grace. And I'd like to just real quickly just go over um, a review of the first uh, two chapters of Ephesians. So if you would, turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. We're going to just kind of follow the headings, which, again, aren't inspired, but I think help us outline the book and help us keep track of Paul's thought as he's going through the first part of the book of Ephesians. And just real quickly, if you look, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 is an introduction. It's a typical Pauline introduction uh, to a letter that he's writing to the church. Right after that, uh, verses 3 through 14, chapter 1, verses 3 through 14, is this amazing doxology that we spent a lot of time in, this praising God, praising the members of the Trinity for their different works in redemption. Past, present, future, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Praising God for for his salvation and grace that he's poured out on his people. Then you get to Ephesians 1, 15 through 23, and it's actually a prayer that Paul has written out. 
A prayer that Paul is probably praying over and over uh, to the church. And what's interesting about this prayer is, honestly, I, I believe if Paul was alive today and he had a relationship with us, Country Oaks, this is probably what he would be praying for us. He writes this prayer out, and he tells the church that he prays nonstop, continuously, that they would know. They would have knowledge. They would know how rich they truly are in Christ. And after that prayer, we get to the, really the body. Bef- before Ephesians chapter 2, chapter 1 is really kind of an introduction. Right? You have Paul introducing himself, and then he just bursts out in this praise and doxology of the Trinity. And then he writes out this prayer, and then you get to Ephesians 2, verse 1, and it starts the body. And it's one of the clearest passages in all of Scripture, verses 1 through 10, chapter 2, 1 through 10, on salvation. He writes out who we were before God acted in our life, what God did in acting in our life, and, and, and what that means for us. And that really is foundational to Ephesians 2, 11 through 22, which I really believe is the heart of the book. Ephesians 2, 11 through 22 is all about the Jews and Gentiles being one body, that the church is one body. It's one body. It's what... Paul was praying that they would understand how rich they are in Christ and how they are one. Now we are in chapter 3, and I just want you to look at chapter 3, verse 1. It's a a verse that we spent a lot of time on, and it says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles. And he keeps going. What's interesting about verse 1, and I haven't pointed this out yet, is that there's no verb. He just says this, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner. And he just keeps going, and you don't see a verb in verse 2. It's really an incomplete sentence. It's an incomplete thought, inspired by God, of course. He doesn't finish his thought really until verse 14. Look at verse 14. He repeats himself. For this reason, I bow my knee before the Father. In other words, in in Ephesians 3, verse 1, he's about to write out another prayer. Because Ephesians 3, 14 He writes out a prayer, but in Ephesians 3, verse 1, he's about to write out the prayer. He's about to say, for this reason, I I bow my knees, I I pray before God. But before he does that, he gets sidetracked. (laughs) Again, it's a sidetrack or a digression or a side note or or a rabbit trail inspired by God. And Paul does this pretty often. It's a rabbit trail. It's 13 verses of a rabbit trail that Paul, Paul goes on. Paul is saying, I, for this reason, I, he's about to write out a prayer, and before he does, he goes, before we move on, I need to tell you this. I didn't make this up. I didn't make, you need to know I didn't make this up, this, this truth I'm in prison for, this, this mystery I'm in prison for, I didn't make this up. And last week, we looked at the first half, half of this, this rabbit trail And Paul really highlights two things that this was revealed to him. He didn't make it up. It was revealed by God to him, and not just him, all the apostles. That this mystery, that the Jews and Gentiles are one body, was was revealed to him and revealed to the apostles. Today we're going to finish the second half of this rabbit trail that Paul has taken us on. And the three points of our sermon this morning is Paul's calling... Paul, or God's eternal purpose and our eternal benefit. That's Paul's calling, God's eternal purpose, and our eternal benefit. So let's start with Paul's calling. If you look at verse 7 with me. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, 
which was given me by the work of his power. Chapter 3, verse 7 starts off by saying, Of this gospel, this good news, I was made a minister. I was made a minister. We said last week, Paul wasn't seeking this ministry out. He wasn't seeking to become an apostle. God found him. He was on his way to persecute Christians, and God knocked him off his horse, brought saving grace to him, and gave him the ministry to the Gentiles. In fact, Acts 19.15 says that, that Paul was God's chosen instrument. Chosen instrument. Verse 7, of this gospel I was made a minister. The Greek word for minister there is dikonos. It's a synonym for doulos, and a lot of us know that word, familiar with that word doulos in Greek, which means servant, or really it means slave. Dikonos is, is a, a, a synonym for that word. It means servant. It really means a table waiter who is always at the bidding of a, his customer. It was a word used for a table waiter. And look what Paul says. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Paul didn't see himself as a hero. I mean, Paul undoubtedly is a hero of the faith, but he didn't see himself as a hero. He saw himself as a servant to God in the church. A servant who was merely the recipient of God's grace. His salvation was a gift from God, and his ministry was a gift. In fact, look what he says. I just think this is interesting because he's trying to get a point across. Remember, grace, that word means unmerited favor or unmerited gift. Undeserved gift. And look what he says in verse 7 again. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's unmerited gift which was given me. (laughs) He's trying to get a point across that this ministry was a gift to him. And I just think this is interesting because Paul's life is just displayed in the in the New Testament and you really get to know who this man is by reading the New Testament over and over and over and the stories about him and then just his personal letters where he kind of opens up his heart to the churches. And Paul saw his ministry as a gift and I just want you to think of his ministry. He was suffering after suffering after suffering after suffering. The man was stoned, the man was beaten, the man was in prison over and over again as he's writing this letter He is in prison and saying, this is a gift of God. This is a man that truly understood the gift that is in a relationship with the Lord. Because the interesting thing about Paul is is with all that suffering, he also wrote another letter in prison, and it's Philippians. And every other word in Philippians is joy. It's joy. This man has lost everything this this world could offer him, and yet he was completely joy-filled. And it doesn't mean he had hard times. You could read his letters and he just opens up raw emotion. But it was a man that understood that true joy is only found in a relationship with the Lord and obeying him and seeking after him in God's glory. He just loved that about Paul. And he considered his ministry, even as he's in prison, a gift of God. Look at verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. How could Paul write that, right? I mean, we read that and we go, but Paul, you're Paul. He says something similar in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says, I'm the least of all the apostles. But here, he takes it a step further and says, I'm the least of all the saints. Of every Christian, I am the least. And actually, in the Greek, it's worded interesting. It's literally the less than the least or, or more least than the least. 
I really believe this wasn't a false humility on Paul's part. Because you look at Paul's ministry, and he wasn't afraid to remind people of his apostolic authority. He wasn't afraid to tell people that, that he has authority given to him by God. In fact, 2 Corinthians eleven five says, Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to the super apostles. In other words, I'm not inferior to the other apostles. I have the same authority as the other apostles when I tell you this. It's very clear he knew that that his writing had the authority of God behind it. He wasn't afraid to to appeal to that authority. He even told people to to be imitators of him. 1 Corinthians 11.1, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Paul was confident. He was a leader. He was not afraid to use his authority or be in authority. But he also was very humble. Just a perfect balance. He knew he owed everything to the grace of God. That everything he was was because of God's grace. Verse 8, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And why was he the least of all the saints? Well, there's two reasons that most pastors and theologians believed Paul was thinking when he says, I am the least of all the saints. First is because of his past, that he was a prideful, legalistic Pharisee, a persecutor of the church. He's the least to deserve this grace. But second, I think this is important, second, he had a clear understanding of God's holiness and God's righteousness. And the closer he got to God's holiness and righteousness, the closer he understood God's righteousness, the the more he understood his unrighteousness. He had a big view of God, and God's holiness exposed him to his lack of holiness. God's holiness really exposed him to his need for grace. For grace. That's why, just kind of a side note, the holiness of God is actually a great place to start in evangelism. Having a big view of God drives people to grace. It drives people to grace. God's holiness drives us to grace. Because that's our only hope is mercy and grace when we see a holy God. Verse 8. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. I believe Paul saw his calling as a gift, a privilege, a joy. And what did Paul preach? He preached to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. He preached to believers how rich we are. How rich we are in Christ. And he preached to unbelievers the grace that is offered to them, that if they put their faith in Christ, they can have those same riches that are offered to them. And I would just say, right now, if you don't know the Lord Jesus He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sins. He was raised on the third day, conquering death. He's offering that to you this morning. He's offering the riches, the unmeasurable riches. Listen to what it says. In Christ, this is what's offered, and this is what we have in Christ. Ephesians 1, 3 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That's just infinite. (laughs) Ephesians 1.16 says, I do not cease, this is Paul writing to the church, I do not cease to 
give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. This is what Paul prayed, verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, having eyes, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That's how rich we are being in Christ. The inheritance that's promised to us. Or Ephesians 3.18, Paul is praying again that the church, he writes out a pray that, prayer that the church may have the strength to comprehend, and I've said this before, but it, I just love this. We need strength just to understand with all the saints what are the depth and, or depth and length and height, or breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with, with all the fullness of God. Paul preached and prayed that believers would understand how rich they are, how blessed we are in Christ. And I've said this as we went through Ephesians 1, if we truly understood how rich we are, we'd just live differently. We'd live differently. We'd live like Paul. What's, what, what are you going to do? What are you going to take away from me? I'm, I'm rich. Right? Right? To live is Christ, to die is gain. There's nothing you can do to me. So Paul preached the riches we have in Christ, and look at verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. One of Paul's callings, I think this is just interesting, and he, he equates this with, he doesn't equate it, but he puts it with preaching the riches of Christ, that, that, that one of Paul's callings is that to reveal the mystery that's been hidden for ages. It was his calling to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of this mystery. And we've been talking about this mystery that Jews and Gentiles are one body, that Christians from every nation are one body, that the church is the body of Christ. It tells us in verse 6, this is the mystery. It's clear. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same bodies, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, that Jews and Gentiles are one body, that the church is one body. Paul prayed that we would know that, that it's true. Right? That's the truth. We are one body, but he prayed and he preached that we would understand that we truly are one body no matter how we act. And he prayed that we would act in light of that. And it gets us to our second point. That's Paul's calling. The second point of the sermon this morning is God's eternal purpose. God's eternal purpose. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That's the angels. You know, every now and then, I, as I'm reading through Scripture, especially as I'm preparing to preach on a passage, I read a verse that just kind of stops me in my track. And I just go, what, what does that even mean? <laughs> that there's just weight behind the verse. You can just feel it. And that, that's this verse. This is, this is what Paul is saying. I should just think about this. That through the church... Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the angels. That God is displaying his wisdom through us, the church. 
just take a second and think about that. For how flawed the church is. Right? One of God's purposes for the church is to display his manifold wisdom to the angels. I mean, that means on a cosmic scale. You know, I'm saying how, how we love each other is a testimony to, to our community, and that's true. Also, God, Jesus says they'll know you by your love for each other. It's a testimony. This tells us it's, it's a testimony of God's wisdom on a cosmic scale, not just to Hatchapi. Manifold, that's an interesting word. I'll be honest, I had no idea what it meant when I first read it. And so I looked it up, and I looked it up in the Greek, and in Greek it's, the, it's palu poikailos, palu poikailos, which means pertaining to that which is different in a number of ways. Many and diverse, manifold, many-sided. It's a, actually a compound word, and if you heard it's palu, which, which comes from the word poly, meaning many. When you put the word all together, it literally means many-colored. Many-colored. Many-colored wisdom. And there's different colors to God's wisdom, in other words. It, it's used in Septuagint to describe Joseph's co- coat of many colors. The wisdom of God displayed in the church is many-sided, in other words. It's like a diamond that shines in all different ways. Don't miss the significance of that. What we're doing right now, being together, worshiping together. The angels are watching us. Praising God for his wisdom. One pastor put it this way, and I think this is just, I like this. In the classroom of God's universe, God is the teacher, the angels are the students, the church is the illustration, and the subject is the manifold wisdom of God. In fact, turn with me to First Peter verse one, or chapter one, verse 10. First Peter chapter one, verse 10. You know, it kills me because I feel like our culture nowadays, especially in America and Western civilization, just this in evangelical circles even, doesn't think the church is important. Doesn't feel like you need to be a part of a church. You can be a Christian and and have nothing to do with the church. And you get to this passage, this verse that says that the church displays God's manifold wisdom to the angels. Look at 1 Peter 1 verse 10, it says this, concerning the salvation, it's talking about our salvation, the church's salvation, the prophets, these are Old Testament prophets, right? The prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searching, uh, searched and inquired carefully. In other words, Old Testament prophets, as they were writing, searched and inquired what God was going to do. I'm guessing they probably try to find each other's writings and go, what, what, what is God doing? How is God going to save his people? Verse 11, they inquired, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was uh, revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from, from heaven. In other words, these Old Testament prophets... Um, knew their, their writings pointed forward to a great coming salvation. But look at this last line. 
things into which angels long to look. Angels wanted to know how and when. Can you just imagine? I was just thinking of this as I was going through these passages. The angels' perspective of everything. These angels that have seen God in his full glory. The God of the universe who spoke everything into existence. That spoke them into existence. Came down to earth as a baby. And they were there. To see it. Fact. Philippians 2.6 says this, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, in other words, hold on to, held on to, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The angels were there in Bethlehem. Can you imagine what they were thinking when they saw the baby? What about the temptation of Jesus? Jesus, 40 days without food, Satan tempting him, blaspheming God in front of him, and Jesus is there, they're starving to death, physically weak. And the very end, he sa- it says this in Matthew 4:11. then the devil left him because he lost. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Imagine what those angels were thinking. Jesus was weak, not in his spirit, not in his divinity. He won in those things, but in his humanity, he was hungry and thirsty and needed the angels to minister to him. What about the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus just gets a taste of God's wrath, the the cup of God's wrath, and one taste of this cup of God's wrath brings him to his knees. He staggers, he screams, he sweats blood. In fact, Luke twenty two forty one says, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Can you imagine what that angel thought? Who was strengthening Jesus. Not, not again, because he needed strength in, in his spirit or his divinity, because he was physically weak. One taste of God's wrath almost physically killed him. Can you imagine what the angel thought when he heard Jesus say, not my wills, but yours. Not my will, but yours be done. Why are you doing this? Can you imagine what the angels were thinking when the Roman guards drove nails through his hands? What did they think when Jesus died for men who rebelled against him, who left him, scattered, who rejected him, who mocked him, who spat on him, who beat him, who killed him? Angels saying, why? Why would you die for these sinners? How about this? Can you imagine the joy? The joy they had when Jesus was raised from the dead? The angels that were at the grave, the empty tomb. 
the joy in heaven, the joy at the ascension, when, when Jesus was restored to his rightful place, and Philippians 2, 9 says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen, Jesus told us in Luke fifteen ten, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. They're watching, and they're joy-filled every time someone is saved, every time the miracle of salvation happens. And salvation is a miracle. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 makes that clear. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. A miracle every single time. And the angels rejoice, marvel at God's wisdom and grace, and praise him. Can you imagine what was going on in heaven when Paul was saved? I mean, think about that. The great persecutor of the church brought to his knees in repentance. And God is going to use him to take the gospel to the nations. God's mercy and grace has poured out on him. Listen, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Through the church, God's wisdom is being made known to the angels on a cosmic scale. That's amazing. But I want to remind you the context of our passage this morning. God's wisdom is multicolored. There's multi-dimensions. You can look at God's wisdom with the church. But the context, the theme of Ephesians 3 is the mystery. Jews and Gentiles being one in Christ. Our unity displays God's wisdom, in other words. Our diversity and unity coming together in worship of God displays his wisdom. Turn with me to Revelations 5, verse 5. Revelations 5, verse 5 says, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And and between the throne and the four living creatures, I'm going to stop right there, the four living creatures, these creatures are the cherubim. These are angels. and, And don't think white, fluffy, feather, nice angels. These are massive, scary-looking angels. They're frequently talked about in the Old Testament. Ezekiel, there's this long description of these angels, and, and to be honest, they sound terrifying. These massive angels, powerful angels, they're typically connected to God's presence, power, and holiness. These amazing angels, and between the throne and the four living creatures, are there, there's these angels, and among them, the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went 
and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures, these massive angels, and the, and the 24 elders all fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, this is what the angels sing. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people, nation. And you have made them a kingdom, one, and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. These angels worshiping Jesus for his work of redemption, redeeming people from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and making them into one kingdom, one body, unifying them. Look at verse 11 because it keeps going. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering... um, Myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. God's eternal purpose, His glory, that He would be glorified. He will be worshiped forever and ever and ever for His work of reconciliation, reconciling, reconciling man and God, and reconciling man and man into one body. Now look back at Ephesians 3, verse 10. Ephesians 3, 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authority in the heavenly places. Verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the angels, and this is according to his eternal purpose. Thomas said last week that the church wasn't God's plan B. There's a lot of people that think God went to Israel, Israel rejected him, and so church was plan B. Israel was plan A, church was plan B. That's not the case. Look what it says in verse 11. This was according to his eternal purpose realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. God had a purpose for the church that spans eternity. And what was God's eternal purpose? Well, Paul already has told us in Ephesians, God's glory. God's glory. In fact, just look at Ephesians 1, 3. I just want to go through this doxology one time. Ephesians 1, 3. It says, blessed be that. In other words, glorify God for this. 
That's the theme of this whole doxology. It's a, it's a praising God, glorifying God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before, in him before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ, Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. It's all to the praise of his glory. with which he has blessed us in the beloved. God has blessed us that, that he would be praised, that he would be glorified. Remember the song the angels sang in Revelation, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Look at verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of, of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have, have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who, who works all things according to the counsel of will, so that, this is why, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. So that God would be glorified. Verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. And Paul's making a point. It's all about the, the glory of God. That's why we're here. That's why there is a church, that, that, that God would be glorified. In fact, look at Ephesians 2 verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We are rich. Why is God so gracious to us? Verse 7, so that. So that in the coming ages for eternity he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus so that he would be glorified. For eternity. Listen, we are trophies of God's grace and mercy. We are trophies of God's grace and mercy for eternity. That's what he will be glorified and praised for. For by grace you have been saved. Verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. Don't take his glory. Don't you dare take his glory. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one may boast. He gets all the glory. For we are his workmanship. That word in Greek means masterpiece. It's like a, a master sculptor making a, a statue that is a masterpiece, or a painter making a masterpiece painting that he's displayed so everyone can see. We are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should just walk in them. God's ultimate purpose in salvation, his ultimate purpose for the church is his glory. It's his glory. Listen, that should be our purpose too, right? One pastor put it this way, the church does not exist simply for the purpose of saving souls. 
not for missions either. You know how much I love missions. It's not, it's not for saving souls, though that is a marvelous and important work. Don't get me wrong. The supreme purpose of the church, as Paul makes explicit here, is to glorify God by manifesting his wisdom before the angels, who can then offer greater praise to God. The purpose of the universe is to give glory to God. Even now, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky proclaims his handiwork, Psalms 19.1. The church is not an ends in itself, but a means to an end, and the end is glorifying God. The real drama of redemption can only be understood when we realize that the glory of God is the supreme goal of creation. Which leads us to our last point this morning, and that is our eternal benefit. Our eternal benefit. A lot of people struggle with this. If God's highest purpose is to glorify himself, doesn't that make him selfish? Doesn't that make him self-centered or egotistic somehow? Here is why this is not selfish in a negative sense. When God displays his glory, what is he displaying? Love. Justice. Mercy. Grace. Wisdom. Faithfulness. These are all good things, right? It's because God is good. When God displays his glory, it's always to our benefit. It's always to our benefit because we find our greatest satisfaction and joy in God's glory. In fact, this is so true that it would be unloving by God to not make much of himself. If God hid his glory and said, hey, it's not all about me, that would be unloving because that's the the thing we need more than anything else. That's what satisfies our soul. That's what we find joy in is his glory. I just want to be clear on this. When God makes much of himself, we benefit. You know how I I can prove this? What's the most glorious thing God did in Scripture? The cross. Who benefits from the cross? Jesus gets all the glory, we get salvation. Look at verse 11. This was according to the eternal purpose, which Paul has made clear as God's glory. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now look at verse 12. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We benefit. Through our faith in him, we have access to to God, and not just access, but bold, confident access. Because God displayed his glory in the cross, we benefit and have access to him for those that have put their faith in Jesus. You know, one of the most comforting things in life, and, and when, I, when I am a pastor and I'm with people that are struggling and suffering and they come to me and say, why did this happen? The most comforting things you will find in life is the character of God. That God is, is good. That God is loving. That God is faithful. He is there. That God is wise. 
He's wiser than us. We may not have a clue why he's doing what he's doing, but he knows more than we do. And when you add that to God being sovereign and all-powerful, you end up with a trustworthy God. A trustworthy God. And Paul puts his trust in him. Look at verse 13. So I ask you, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory, that's salvation. That the Jews could be saved. Paul, Paul ends this section back where he started. From verse 1, he says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I'm a prisoner, prisoner of Christ Jesus because that's exactly where God wants me. I'm a prisoner because of this mystery. And then in the last verse, verse Verse 13, he says, don't lose heart over what I am suffering for you. This is where God wants me. I trust him. And Paul is suffering for the church. Paul is suffering for the church. He said, I suffer for you, church of Ephesus. Paul had a love for the church. You know, it's funny. It's the, there's, um, there's a point in Scripture where Paul lists out all the things all the sufferings that he's gone through. And, and, and he goes through, like, all the, like, been shipwrecked, like, 12 times. I've been beaten, I don't know how many times. I've been stoned, which I don't know how you survive stoning. Like, all these things that he's going through. And at the very end of that list, he says, and then there's the daily distress of, I have for the church because I love the church. I'm anxious for the church. A very imperfect church, by the way. If you're frustrated with the church, I mean, think of the church at Corinth that Paul loved. <laughs> Talk about an imperfect church. He understood the importance of the church. Paul understood the importance of the church. Because through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, to the angels. On a cosmic cell. Let me just end with this. This, this deep theology. And there's application to it. Don't get me wrong. But I just have one application point this morning. Make the church a priority. Make the church a priority. If this is not your home church, and I just want to talk with you, if this isn't your home church, you're not sure about Country Oaks, find a church and get involved. Make it a priority. It doesn't have to be our church. There's good churches in Tatchby. Make the church a priority. If this is your church, get involved. Get involved. How? Well, we try to spell it out in, in the ways we think it's important to get involved, and that's through the worship, grow, serve. Worship, grow, serve. Worship should be a life of worship, but when we say worship in that worship, grow, serve, we're just talking about corporate worship. Coming together, what we're doing right now, worshiping through, through singing scripture, worshiping through praying scripture, worshiping through just hearing scripture preached and read. We come together and worship as a body unified in, in what God has, has called us to do and unified in what Christ has done for us. Grow. There's many ways you can grow, but one of the best ways of growing, one of the, the means of grace that God's given us is each other get involved in a smaller, intimate group that we can keep each other accountable. An ABF or a growth group, if you're not involved in one of those, I encourage you to, to try to find a place where you can rub shoulders with other Christians that can love on you, that can be there for you, that can keep you accountable. And then serve. We need you. 
hurt my arm last week and it's just now kind of getting uh, it's still not working well and I'm just realizing how important my left arm is <laughs> right we're called a body because we're all different members of that body and remember when Shaq got injured his like toe and couldn't play for like months and I was like dude it's just a toe he needed that toe <laughs> right? we need each other we leaders of this church, I'll be the first to say that, that we're an imperfect church, right? We're not a perfect church at all. We're not perfect leaders. I am definitely not a perfect pastor. But we need you. We need each other. And that's how God's made it. That's his wisdom being displayed. I just want to end with a quote. I thought this was a challenging quote, to say the least. It's from Kent. Hughes and, Hughes, and he writes this. The bottom line is, the church is not an option for believers, nor is supporting it an option. I am not saying you have to go to church to be a Christian, but you also do not have to go home to be married. However, if you don't frequent your home, your marriage will be in jeopardy. Attendance and participation in your local church is not an option. Paul's gospel was Christ and the church. As we all know, the church on earth is imperfect. Again, we're imperfect. Right? If you're new this morning, I'll just tell you we're imperfect. <laughs> Nevertheless, we must, we must be committed to the local manifestation of the universal church. We must be committed to regular worship and should worship with all that we have. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, Lord, but I know that we are imperfect, Lord, and that just glorifies you more, that you would, <laughs> you would save us, Lord, that we're sinners saved by grace, God. I, I pray for our church, Lord. I pray for anyone that's just kind of on the outskirts of our church, Lord, that you would encourage them to get involved, Lord. I pray for, for us that, that just loves this church, Lord, that we would reach out to those and, and pull them in, Lord. God, I love Country Oaks. I love this body. Again, we're not perfect, Lord. And I just displays your grace, Lord, for sure. I pray for your protection over this body, Lord. I do pray that we are a witness to this, this community with our mouths, Lord, that we go out and boldly share the gospel, unashamedly share the gospel with those that, are, that are, aren't saved, Lord. But we also, we, we also display your love by loving each other. If I, as I say all the time, as I've said throughout this series, that, that our love would be a testimony to our community, Lord, but I also pray that, that we would be a testimony of your wisdom to the angels. That the cosmos would look at us as a church and go, wow, God, look at your wisdom. Not because we did anything, Lord, despite us, because of your grace that has been poured out on us. Because of what you're doing here, Lord, I pray for that in your son's name. Amen.